Mixed Media Movies. And welcome and back welcome to back Mixed to Media. media. Um, but today on Mixed Media Movies, movies I'm going to be talking about the information, information cycle, cycle or information, information laundering. laundering. It's a very, it's very specific, specific term. term. And, and I guess, I guess the first, first thing, thing I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go, go over the, the why, why again, again, like I did with the metaverse. metaverse because, because, again, you know, you know these, these are, are things that are not directly related to media in a sense, sense but, it but it ultimately impacts media and it ultimately impacts, impacts art. art. So there's, so there's, there's a, a reason, reason, there's a methodology I've been going through these topics one by one, and I will arrive at a cool place hopefully. So here we go. So information laundering. So the why. So, so this, this is a continuation, continuation on, on a theme, theme like, like I said. So, so first we started with uh, freeware and how it destroys art. So we're talking, we used uh, Google as a, as a chief example. We talked about, you know, how um, essentially the freeware model has changed the way that we view value. We talked about how that might change over time. We talked about how NFTs may or may not help with that sort of uh, Atmosphere. That's a very it's general overview. You're going to have to go check out the, the episode to, to get a, a deep look. Then we did uh, an episode on the metaverse, which is uh, you know now headed by the company Meta, formerly known as Facebook. And uh, the idea of NFTs and digital ownership sort of you know came into play there. You know, and we started talking about you know. What that, what that might, might look, look like, like ultimately speaking, speaking went down a little bit of a rabbit hole, hole that I didn't expect to go down, down <laughs> in terms of uh, how, how things are interconnected. Um, but uh, I, thought I thought it was pretty cool at the end, at the end of it. I learned a lot for sure in preparing for that episode. And then now we are here. Um, and here is uh, information laundering. Now, ultimately, I want to get to an episode that I will probably call What Did Hitchcock Know About the CIA? which is going to be a fun, be a fun one. one. Um, that, that might be the last entry, or maybe it'll be a rolling, uh, rolling, uh, you know, series, uh, you know, that I add entries to, you know, uh, less connected um, as I think of things to add to it. But the entire idea here is to understand how modern cultural zeitgeists sort of appear, right? So, like, how do they manifest? Why do we get X at X time? You know, all these sorts of things impact art and industry and economics, and it impacts the way that even you have to make decisions all the way down to you. So it's, it's, it's a pretty crazy thing, but trust me, it's worthwhile to listen to. So in any case, there's also a lot of talk about, you know, information in general, right? So whether it's good information, bad information, you know, the buzzwords, right, are like misinformation, disinformation. You know, if you looked at a Google Trends graph, I'm sure you'd find like some crazy spike, you know, as of like, I don't know, the, the, the mid-2010s mid or something, or something like, like that, that you know, into now, you know, you know spiking. spiking. Um, and so, so it is a trendy, trendy topic. So, so the first, first way that I think we can, can uh, I, guess I guess, learn, learn a little bit about, about um, uh, information, information laundering, which is actually an older, older term than I thought it was, is to understand what money laundering is. So, you know, that's a more common term. We all have heard of money laundering. The Treasury, the U.S. Treasury definition of money laundering is illegally gained proceeds made to appear legal. So, you know, if you've watched any crime show like Breaking Bad or anything like that, you know, money laundering is always a problem. In fact, it's a huge, huge, huge deal if you're a criminal, right? Because the one thing that you can't do very easily is spend the money that you uh, you acquired, right? <laughs> you know, like just because you have heaped 
you know, you've amassed large quantities of money doesn't mean you can all of a sudden act like a millionaire where there's no account uh, for how you got your millions, right? So it's a it's a huge problem if you're a millionaire. Um, see Breaking Bad for more information. You know, money laundering basically has three steps. There's placement, there's layering, and there's integration. So placement is taking the illegal money and putting it in some entity or entities or putting it in the funnel, rather, is probably the best way to think about it. Layering is essentially trying to mask that money amongst other money. So you might, you know, if you have a restaurant as your money laundering front, you might stuff a few extra dollar bills in the cash register, you know, every uh, transaction, pretend it's a tip, right, or something like that. And that's called layering, essentially. That would be a very simple form of layering. Apparently, it gets really complicated with larger criminal organizations. I don't really understand it, frankly. <laughs> and then the last step is integration. So you have to get that money back to you somehow, right? Because you want to actually use it. And uh, presumably, you have to have some some excuse, like maybe you actually own that restaurant, or maybe you know that restaurant is like part of some larger corporation, and somehow the money funnels back up to some executive. You know, you get the idea. That's that's what money laundering is, and it happens. A lot, <laughs> a lot, a lot, a lot. And so the, the concept of information laundering is, is very similar. You know, it's, it's pretty much an analogy term to money laundering. So I found this diagram, which I thought was interesting when I searched information laundering. This is the first diagram I, I looked up. In fact, it's in the episode artwork. So here it is. So uh, where this question marks before, it says conspiracy, conspiracy websites, and then it says public knowledge, uh, where those question marks were. So basically we have uh, in this diagram's uh, point of view, we have conspiracy funneling into a conspiracy website, which then gets referenced by search engines, news media, political blogs, social media. They all reference, you know, the source information, and then the source information gets repeated in that way and then given out to the public, right? I find this di diagram interesting because uh, it's a little bit... Uh, unnecessarily inflammatory. So let's do an experiment here. Remove the word conspiracy and uh, public knowledge and replace it with information and uh, target, right? So just make it drier, you know, like, like you would find in some, some PowerPoint. And I think that's a little fair of, of an interpretation because why does the delivery have to be conspiracy? It doesn't, right? It, it could be anything. It could be inflation is transitory, <laughs> right? Or it could be you know, pretty much anything. You can put anything in that box, you deliver it to some source, it gets co-referenced by a whole bunch of stuff, and then at the end of the day, the information is delivered to a, to a person, right, at the end of the day, a human being, and they've gotten it from some blogs, the search engine, whatever it, whatever it may be, and, you know, it doesn't matter what the issue is, it actually doesn't even matter the source, right? So the source could be the, the thing that's that's using this model, could be um, anything from private enterprise, right, for marketing purposes, right? So you could say like something like um, Clorox makes you healthier when you breathe in the fumes or something like that is the, is the target information, <laughs> you know? And the Clorox brand is trying to, you know, uh, to, to undo stories about Clorox being unhealthy for you to breathe in. So it uses this model by injecting, you know, some information into something some central source that everyone can that ever that is already known to be co-referenced quite often it gets co-referenced by all these different sources like again like you see on the screen at the end of the day it becomes you know uh solicited by the target and the target then you know 
takes that as fact, even though the source was sort of masked, right? So that's information laundering in a nutshell. Now, uh, there's an interesting article or an interesting quote by John Stewart of Comedy Central about information la laundering, and I want to uh, pull that up. There we go. It's an article. But basically, John Stewart said, quote, uh, what the media has become is an information laundering system. And then he talks about how information and laundering, fake or otherwise, right? Because it doesn't have to be fake information, necessarily speaking, right? It could be any type of inform information can use this sort of uh, production style to, to be distributed. And his general idea is because secondhand reporting is so common, it is often done without serious vetting of sources. Even relatively reputable news organizations will report on something that a blog or platform of unknown credibility has written. Um, and so there's like, like apparently the New York Times did a case study about like the falsity of a single tweet becoming viral essentially. And then, you know, that the information becomes incorporated into even, even a New York Times article, right? As like a, as a core uh, piece of information, um, which is very interesting. And like the prior episode where we talked about the metaverse, it's important to understand what information really means so out of all the things i would say that is the most sensitive from all kinds of interest and manipulations it probably is information more than money right because information can get you money can get you influence can get you a whole bunch of other things and so you know information is a high target of you know anything of, of, of practically anybody whether it's your neighbor who doesn't want you to know something or it's you know a larger organization. As we talked about in the meta uh, meta uh, episode, we talked about how uh, the metaverse has heavy infra uh, heavy ties with uh, the uh, intelligence community, particularly the CIA through Inqtel. You should definitely go check that out. Um, in fact, just look up Inqtel and and get shivers because you didn't realize uh, how public the CIA invests into uh, massive companies, um, including uh, Facebook and and uh, the technology that makes up Google Maps, et cetera, et cetera. Um, just read the Wikipedia page on InQtel. But yeah, I just wanted to go real quick into the purveyors of news, so or purveyor of information, which is, tends to be the news, and how potentially, you know, or maybe, you know, quite practically, the CIA has sort of encroached on that sphere as well. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? Just like the, like Facebook would be the, you know, big, beautiful machine that could gather so much information and then you can inject information and then you can try to control things, or at least that's what you think you can do, although I think it's a little bit overblown how much you can actually do that, right? Well, you know, news has been a much older source of that, and that goes back far. And we'll be talking about some historical examples in a moment. You know, this is not a new thing at all. This is not, a, it's not even a U.S. thing. This is an everywhere thing for since the dawn of time, practically. Uh, so I want to name a few few people and uh, post a few links because I think it's a little bit more obvious than people realize. It's just that, just like with Meta, people don't know what to look up. So the first example of uh, someone who is uh, CIA is our friend at uh, CNN, Anderson Cooper. There it is, Washington Post article uh, from 2013. I mean, and if you talk, he has it in his memoir as well. He wrote a book where he, he discussed his... Uh, this uh, sort of connection in his memoir and everything like that. So it's not something that's like hidden, right? It's just something that's out in the open. And so, yeah, so the next person is Dana Bash, who appears on CNN all the time. Her husband is directly CIA as well. They're now divorced, I believe. And then 
uh, if, if, lest you accuse me of some sort of bias or anything like that, Sean Hannity from uh, Fox News is CIA. In fact, on his show, he wears a CIA pin. So these are things that are out in the open. There's actually like a huge list. It's, it's very long about uh, CIA alum. Some of these people literally were operatives, like literally, you know, went abroad and you can read about it because they talk about it. Uh, if you just know what to look up, you just look up Sean Hannity, CIA, real quick, and then you uh, figure out what the connection is or whatever. You know, oftentimes it's in their Wikipedia, and it, it's not that hard to uh, to see. So it's not like, you know, this is not like some deep, uh, you know, deeply hidden secret or anything like that. These people are, are openly CIA people. Yeah, he just has a CIA pin on. That's wild. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I just looked at a picture of him. And, you know, I, maybe he stopped wearing it or there's certain pictures where he doesn't have it, right? It's not literally all the time. You just keep looking and randomly there's a CIA pin. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, he wears it on his uh, late night show and all that kind of stuff. So all these people are CIA and people don't realize that. The reason this is important is, is actually quite simple because I think we get all up in arms when we mention these kinds of things for no reason. The reason is simply because of bias, right? When you, when you have someone who's uh, giving you information, all you want to know, what, all, one thing that you really want to know is what potential biases they may have. That's why usually, you know, in like academic works, if there's some sort of conflict, right, people tend to mention their conflicts. And re until recently, all these people used to put their titles, their former titles, on their like lower third on their on the on the news shows when they weren't anchors, like when they were you know appearing as guests. Who would say former CIA analyst, you know, or former CIA strategist, or former whatever something like that. And then you know instead of continuously putting out that image so that you could sort of check that sort of bias, they just stopped putting that out there. Save for Sean Hannity who. It still wears the pin. You can look up the full list. It's it's literally dozens and dozens of people. You know, it, it's it's a really really long list. And then we'll get into to Hollywood in a different episode, and and all the way back to uh, Hitchcock, which is going to be a fun a fun thing. But I want to give this very powerful example that is sort of accidentally related to stuff happening in the world today. I did not plan this. I literally knew of this person well before stuff was happening. In fact, by the way, uh, I, I, did not, uh, I did not say it explicitly in the mixed media episode, and I really wish I did, because just like I was right about inflation, I turned out to be well more than right, well more than right than I'm happy to, to admit because it's hurting me too. Um, and uh, so I was right about inflation, but one thing I also predicted, but I didn't say it uh, explicitly because it wasn't related to the episode, was this conflict happening in, in uh, Ukraine right now. It's in uh, the uh, inflation episode. And I talk about how, ten I talk about how things in Europe are gonna cause an energy crisis and uh, I knew this was going to happen pretty much a, like a year in advance. It was very predictable. But that's a whole, whole other story. But this sort of story from the past is going to be accidentally related to stuff going on in the world right now. And this comes to the example of William Durante. Either of you know who William Durante is? So William Durante was a New York Times writer in the uh, 1930s, primarily, was his uh, heyday. And so William Durante received the... He wrote a series on the Soviet Union in 1931. So he went over, he was the first uh, American journalist who was allowed into the Soviet Union to do special reporting. You know, this was like a, a crown jewel of the New York Times. He was very experienced. And he went uh, to the Soviet Union in 1931 and received a Pulitzer for his reporting in 1932. So that, if you don't know, a Pulitzer is a big deal for a journalist. It's basically like the Oscars of uh, 
of, of journalism, right? Now, if you go and you look at the work, it's quite interesting <laughs> because the series that he wrote in 1931 was gushing about how uh, the Soviet Union was bringing prosperity to uh, the people within the Soviet Union, which, uh, you know, in retrospect is definitely uh, quite wrong, obviously. Um, he wrote extensively about basically how they were creating a Eastern utopia that the West could not fathom the East being so, uh, I guess, fabulously blessed with a system that works so well as it. All the way up into, uh, I think, 1930, this is why it's accidentally related to stuff happening, the Holodomor, right, in Ukraine. He wrote about that as well. And if you don't know about anything about the Holodomor, it was a massive, massive famine, massive famine caused by uh, cruel Soviet uh, policies. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, just look it up if you, if you want to know. And he wrote about the Holodomor, and he said that Western writers were lying about, uh, about the famine, that there was no famine happening in Ukraine, and that he would know because he had, has been there you know, for literally living in places like Ukraine for years, and his, his writing, you know, he said that this was not happening. Now, the reason why this is important is because this information was cited by other reporters to discredit reporters who were saying that, saying otherwise, right? So saying that there was actually a famine happening in Ukraine, and the New York Times held him up as the gold standard for information that was happening out in the Soviet Union. But the thing is, the problem is, is that he was the only source and he was not falsifiable. And I think this is an important thing when it comes to information laundering, is when you create an unfalsifiable source, it becomes almost impossible to trust you. Like the only mechanism that we have is pure trust, right? So like the only thing that we can trust about his reporting is him, because literally he's the only reporter who has that kind of access to, uh, for that time period at least, to the Soviet Union. is He's the only person who can comment from a first-person experience. But because there's no other reporter, there's no competing voice, there's nothing, it becomes unfalsifiable, right? So you can't, you can't say you're definitively wrong about X because we don't have ev evidence to the contrary. So he can basically say whatever he wants, and all he's relying on is his Pulitzer Prize, his New York Times uh, standing, and, and whatever personal credibility he has. Of course, in retrospect, we know that that's absolutely false, everything that he reported. Funnily enough, in 2003, the Pulitzer Committee reviewed a request by a huge number of the public in the 90s to uh, remove his, uh, his Pulitzer Prize post-mortem because he died in 1957. And they denied the application. And I'm not sure why, but uh, that, that just is, is what it is. Generally held up as a as a propagandist for the Soviet Union, he was uh, very much so um, in line with the Soviet establishment to the point where Stalin said that he was a, a wonderful journalist of high credibility. And you can imagine if you're the only person allowed in the Soviet Union, there might be some pressures some pressures on you to say certain things uh, to maybe even leave there alive potentially. So uh, so that's that's the example from uh, the 1930s and. That is an example of information laundering because we have essentially, if we look at this uh, picture again here, we have essentially the information being that the Soviet Union is a wonderful, magical place, that there's no famines happening, and then we have that being injected into a central source, which we know that's going to be co-referenced a lot, which is the New York Times, so that's going to be co-referenced a lot, and it's going to be used essentially to defeat people who are trying to say that X and XYZ is wrong.
So then we have it circulating on, you can imagine, let's say, Washington Post writes an article that's based off the information, part, at least in part, that's uh, written by Durante. Um, in a new article, they sort of repackage some of that information, and uh, it becomes widespread sort of general knowledge that, quote, everyone knows, end quote, and that becomes sort of filtered into the, the general public's consciousness, right? And the source is almost not important anymore, um, although Durante remained you know, a big figure. That's sort of an old example of how that sort of system of working can work itself out, in this case, on behalf of the Soviet Union. Now, time to get a little bit, uh, a little bit spicier. So moving on to modern times, we have a, an event that we all know about, and that's what happened on when? January 6th. We remember what happened on January 6th. Now, I'm not going to comment on anything at all, lest you freak out that I'm going to inject some sort of opinion. I just want to comment about a specific piece because this specific piece is a great example about how information laundering sort of works in the modern era. So in on January 6th, there's... Uh, actually, before I say anything, do you guys remember who Brian Sicknick was? I kind of gave it away a little bit. <laughs> I have no clue, I don't think. Okay, Capitol Police Officer... Does that make it even more? Uh, yeah, I, I know. I, know I, I remember hearing the name, but I don't know. Okay, yeah. So, was. Brian Sicknick was a Capitol Police officer, and I'll, I'll uh, post an article written by the New York Times. I keep picking on the Times. It's because it's a, it's easy. I, I don't mean to pick on the Times. It's not just the Times. Um, but the reason the Times is often involved in information laundering is because it is one, the type of source that will get co-referenced a lot because it's the, the standard, right? So here we go. This is the original article. I think it's behind a paywall, um, unfortunately. So this article was published two days after January 6th, January 8th, 2021, and announced that uh, Officer Brian Sicknick had died. And there were a few facts in here that were quite important and central to the article because they claimed that he died directly due to the rioting happening in the Capitol, right? So directly due to all the rioting that was happening at the Capitol. And the few key details was that someone had sprayed a fire extinguisher at him and that contributed to his death. He was hit on the head with something, you know, whether it was a fire extinguisher or other stuff that he was beaten. And this whole story, this story got a huge trending on Twitter. You know, this is a huge story. It was trending for days on Twitter. Um, it was a pretty big event um, and it would be referenced for a long time after. Then on January 10th, Brian Sicknick's family releases a statement. Um, and I have a article with a quote from their statement. Here we go. This quote, basically, the, the family is saying, we don't know actually how he died. Um, There's some statements by the family saying that there was like, he had medical problems beforehand, that they're still waiting on the coroner's report. And please refrain about talking about their family member because they don't want it to be politicized anymore. Um, so they, they basically said, stop talking about, you know, our, our family member because there's, it's more complicated than you might think. And, you know, we don't know how he died yet. And we're, we're waiting on answers. Then on August 5th, so this is like five months later. Yeah, that's math. <laughs> five or four months later, rather. Four months later on August 5th, the New York Times uh, writes a huge retraction. So they, they, they basically revamped this article. So the article that I originally linked to you is not the same as it was originally published. 
So you can see at the top it says update um, to account for the fact that the cause of death is not exactly what we thought, basically. And the details of the article have been revamped entirely, basically to correct the story to say that he actually died of natural causes. And so I'll post a story posted on August 19th, uh, so a few weeks later, by the New York Times. This is uh, the updated story, so they didn't just write a correction, they wrote a whole new story about Brian Sicknick, where they talk about how his death was from natural causes, that he had a stroke, basically, um, and that, you know, that, that the coroner said, the coroner's report says, quote, from natural causes. If you don't know anything about criminal uh, forensics and you don't know about anything about coroner's reports and everything, anything like that, natural causes precludes human intervention. So human intervention didn't cause the death of Brian Sicknick. In fact, he had health problems preceding, and it just happens that he died two days after the Capitol, Capitol riot, basically. And that's the New York Times article updating that story. Now, by this time, pretty much all news articles, by the time August 5th, even the correction comes about, pretty much all news articles had already co-referenced the New York Times article on the cause of death. So we're talking everything, everyone, Fox News, Washington Post, ABC, MSNBC, NBC, ABC, you know, AP, literally everyone is co-referencing co co this New York Times article in, and revamping it into new articles and across the political spectrum. So this is not, you know, has nothing to do with that. And they're repackaging the information across these different articles to the point where now it becomes general knowledge that Brian Sicknick died from a Capitol rioter, right? But that's not true. In fact, the New York Times would then go on to correct their, their article. Now, this trended again, I think, like maybe three more times on Twitter, something like that, uh, for the following year post Brian Sicknick's death. And they even held a memorial of his death against, sort of against the family's will. Um, if you read the family statements, it feels like they're, they, they're trying to say that they're somewhat forced to attend these events as political events, even though they don't agree with the way his death is being uh, politicized. You can go look up their various statements. Yeah, they say that he died from natural causes. It has nothing to do with it. But what is the end effect of what has happened, basically? It doesn't matter that the New York Times has retracted the original article, because the New York Times, in their mind and in their reader's mind, has has become whole again, right? Like they've they've corrected their mistake. You know, they've written a whole uh, follow up article that corrected even further the details. They've made it abundantly clear from their perspective what actually happened. But from the public's perspective, by and large, if anyone knows his name, they pretty much think that he was killed by the rioters at the Capitol. So the information, the information, and in a moment I'll discuss, you know, the, the sort of intentionality here. But the information has gone from a piece of information that was accompanied by very uh, sort of catchy phrases put into a New York Times article. New York Times article uh, goes out. Information gets spread by a bunch of co-referencing articles. And then by the time that, those, that the original article is corrected, none of those other articles are correcting themselves. So you can still find you know, Fox News articles, tons and tons of other articles you know, that reference uh, Brian Sicknick's death as, uh, as uh, that he died. And they rank high on the search engines, um, probably because of their hit rate, right? Because they've, they've been viewed so many times. So that information is still floating out around, even though it's incorrect. So I picked that 
example because it's important because I think we can uh, we can see that there's something wrong with the way that went because of the fact that the family didn't want it to be so. I think is the the, the reason I picked this example is because we can say with relative certainty because the family didn't want it to be so and because it's insulting to the family for them to deny their wishes, right? Uh, to not politicize it, deny their wishes to not publish his cause of death, deny their, their, their wishes to keep everything private, and that, you know, this is not actually how he died, that if, the, if, if this story, <laughs> you know, was pushed anyway, despite the feelings of the family, that it's probably not an accident, right? Like, if, 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 I, if I said, you know, stop doing that, you're hurting me, and then you do it again, even though now I've notified you that you've hurt, hurt me, there's got to be some level of intent in, involved there, whether or not it's, it's a, it doesn't have to be a grand thing, right? I have, to, I have to be like colluding with blah, blah, blah. I just, I know that there's some sort of intent there because I've already told you that you're hurting me and you're doing it anyway, right? And so I think that makes a good example because the information ended up coming from, we find out later, the information didn't come from the New York Times directly. It didn't come from Brian Sicknick's family directly. It didn't come from social media directly. It actually came from the Capitol Police and not Capitol Police officers, but from the Capitol Police administration. So that's where the core piece of information happened. Now, you can take this information laundering cycle and you can apply it to just about anything, going all the way back to the war in Iraq, going all the way back to, you know, uh, the Cold War times, going all the way back to World War II, going all the way back, all the way back. There's like literally hundreds of examples of this sort of stuff where some, I mean, and you can look into the commercial space, you can look into uh, the, uh, um, like celebrities trying to repair their image, right? Uh, there might be some fun, maybe I'll come, maybe whenever I, uh, I uh, go back to the Alec Baldwin thing and give an update, I'll give an example from uh, Alec Baldwin's, uh, uh, personal saga, but there's there's some evidence that his uh, his uh, image management, you know, I forget what they call them, the image management uh, company that he has in Retainer, has sort of planted, you know, a few of these stories in the, just the right places where they know that they'll get, you know, recirculated around and the original source will sort of go away <laughs> and no one will get sued because you can't sue the person from extrapolating off of the original article. You know, it also provides some sort of legal protection because if you say, well, the New York Times said so, and, uh, you know, I'm not going to, you know, uh, you know, I, I can't I can't be held liable, you know, for um, defamation, let's say, or something like that, because the New York Times said so. That's going to be a reasonable inference, right? You trusting the New York Times is a reasonable inference. And so it sort of shields you from, uh, you know, uh, legal liability as well. So there's a whole bunch of stuff going on there. Now, this leads me back to something that we talked about very briefly in the meta episode. And this was about uh, the uh, traditional media's sort of alignment with uh, Facebook and how that works. So if you remember, I was talking about how the, the traditional media outlets sort of do deals with Facebook. They have contracts where they get upranked, right? So they get to the top of uh, search results autom like by contract. So these traditional media sources, they pay for it. They pay for it with YouTube. That's why when you search like, something news related, you get like basically pure traditional media. It's why, you know, sometimes you get that SNL bar on the top of, uh, on top of the top of YouTube as, as your recommended videos. It's because they have deals. It's not YouTube just randomly giving them that attention, right? They pay for it. 
<laughs> it's advertising. Um, and so traditional media pays people like Facebook for those upranked spots. And it's evolved over time as Facebook has taken stances on misinformation, let's say, to use the, the buzzword. Uh, they've done it through fact-checking organizations. But the thing that people have to understand is that these fact-checking organizations are not just the, the, the economic tie is not simple. So basically what happens is Facebook pays the fact checker to fact check, which would be different if these fact checking organizations didn't get paid. So like if you took like a, a nonprofit organization and you said, I'm going to be a fact checker, the economics incentives would be a lot cleaner. But because Facebook pays these fact checkers, um, there's a question of independence. So this was recently challenged in the courts. It's still going through the courts, basically, that independence is not being properly the word independent fact checker is not proper because facebook is paying them now the way these things work is that these companies they don't get paid enough by facebook to do these fact checks what they want is clicks so like the fact check you know whatever is also an advertisement essentially so when you click it and you go to the website well they have ads on the website right so they're trying to sell their page so they need you to go to the page you know, that's, that's, that's the name of the game, basically. It's a click driver, basically. And so these fact-checking organizations, they have a similar issue with information laundering. I'm not going to get into, you know, whether or not, you know, what, what the motivations are. I'm not going to comment on that. I'm not going to comment on who knows what. I don't really care. The point I'm trying to make is this is mostly so that we can set up for the CIA episode with Hitchcock later so that we can understand how these things sorts, sort of work and uh, connected also back to the metaverse, is that when we're talking about how these organizations get that sort of extra boost, you have to understand that sometimes information laundering also gets an extra boost, right? So if you are, I don't know, like any, any I don't know, name your thing, you know, you, you don't, it doesn't have to be some grand conspiracy. If you just pick, pick some random entity, a company, um, a person, and they inject a story. In fact, I had a fact check as an example about Brian Sicknick. Maybe I'll put it in the description in the uh, final podcast. But basically, you know, you get fact checks even from back then that are citing the New York Times article as a reference for the fact check. But then the fact check is also being used for as a as a means to determine who gets the little tag on their post or who who even gets banned or you know deranked or whatever it may be. So you have something where the New York Times has already retracted, you know, like, let's say four months later, but Facebook is still putting the little tag on people's posts. So that's the situ bizarre situation you, you get into. And it gets even more bizarre when you then reconnect the docs back from CIA in the media to CIA at Facebook, you know, direct connections. You connect the two and you can see why the synergy might not be such a good idea. <laughs> Might not be the greatest idea ever to have this sort of synergy between the CIA, information laundering sources, and then those publication sources like Facebook. And so, yeah, that's going to take us back in time. Um, next time I talk about this stuff, it's going to take us back in time to, uh, to Hitchcock's era and his form of information laundering that was happening back then. And information laundering as it happened in movies. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be talking about that next time. So that, that's my pitch, basically, that this stuff does affect the art. When you're looking at a film like North by Northwest, where Hitchcock is uh, commenting on a lot of CIA stuff, 
um, it takes on a new flavor when you understand the kinds of pressures and societal influences that he had at the time. And when you look at a bunch of the, uh, you know, uh, sort of Cold War films and you look at those, it also takes on a different tone and tenor. And uh, there'll be a lot of bizarre things that hopefully I can uncover. Again, it's going to be take a lot of work to do so. So uh, if you enjoy this, hit the thumbs up button because uh, I might have to read a book or two in order to do the next one justice. So uh, that's basically my thing on uh, information laundering. Nice. Yeah, pretty, pretty intuitive, I guess, um, how that would work. Yeah, it, it's uh, hopefully next time, too, uh, I'll, I'll grab a few excerpts from uh, some CIA documents as well, and we can have fun looking at how spies do stuff, because um, a lot more stuff is public than, than, you, than you imagine through a lot of different uh, mechanisms. So, all right. So uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Mixed Media. Definitely check out the other episodes that we did on freeware and on the metaverse and all that and uh subscribe if you're interested on hearing about how this evolves when we talk about the cia and hitchcock and hollywood uh, as it came from the the soviet cold war times all the way up until today and i I think you'll be surprised so uh subscribe hit the thumbs up button and we'll uh, see you next time uh steph says it's kind of crazy how much is out in the open, but not many people know about it because it's not publicized so much, particularly all the CIA and the news slash media. Yeah, I mean, I only touched on the tip of the iceberg. I, I might link um, a few resources with like much longer lists, and I think you'll be surprised. Um, it's like when I say it's a big list, I, I'm saying it's like like half of anchors pretty much are have a direct CIA, CIA connection um, that aren't really hidden at all. So. <laughs> Yeah, we, I also links back to um, something I did some point last year. I was talking about um, perception of Russian music, right? And um, you know the, the CIA and yeah, yeah. I mean that that's what inspired me to go down this rabbit hole. Actually, when you started, talking, I was like, huh, I actually know stuff about this. And I was like, <laughs> let me yeah. let me let me expound on that. That's pretty. Yeah, you know, for anyone listening, if you, I don't remember what exactly that's titled, but. I do have an, not necessarily the focus of what I was talking about, but um, I do get in, a little bit into um, the the role of you know the CIA in advising President Kennedy on the arts and you know his music advisor. He had a you know music and cultural advisor who was helping him write speeches and you know the impact of CIA and, and that kind of stuff on just how we talked about Soviet art in the '60s. Yeah, for sure. The fun thing that I think uh, we'll end up talking about is how the CIA actually, uh, in the in film at least, actually ends up being somewhat of a connoisseur of film because it needs, uh, in order to do what it needs to do or wants to do in terms of injecting information or injecting sentiments and whatever, it actually needs to create good stuff in general. Um, like it can't make bad stuff. It actually needs to make good stuff. So uh, that's an interesting uh, sort of sort of thing, I think, to think about is like, huh. You know, just because X director worked with the CIA on manipulating the script a little bit in order to inject a sort of message in there doesn't mean the director is is like not a good director because that actually defeats the purpose. They want a good director to uh, to make a compelling film about X topic. So it's a interesting thing. <laughs> Maybe you think like, huh, I wonder how often this happens in like the video game industry. And it reminded me actually, well. It's not really a CIA thing necessarily, right? Or necessarily anything like uh, covert or dubious, right? It's just like, uh, remind me of that, uh, that the army has its own uh, video game uh, called America's Army, <laughs> which is a, uh, I mean, it's explicit, right? It's in the name. <laughs> um, 
which is uh, it's paid for by you if you're American, the taxpayer. Uh, it's entirely free otherwise. <laughs> oh, yeah, and it reminded me of, of some news I did not say. Actually, I forgot about this, but uh, America's Army is uh, finally officially shutting down uh, after many, many, many years. Uh, it's quite the old series, uh, older than one might think. They, were, they got, you know, like, not crazy old, but, like, older than you think, uh, given, you know, like, the popularity of games over time, and they, they figure out, like, oh, yeah, this is this is a reasonable investment. We somehow can convince people <laughs> to uh, spend tax money on video games <laughs> as a recruiting <laughs> tool. I am skeptical that it worked uh, at all. I mean, it's not very, like, I don't know how to explain it, but, like, you just play the game. I don't know. Like, obviously, I know a lot of advertising you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to feel, right? You just, but it does affect you uh, subconsciously. But, um... I'm thinking about like okay, but FPS games are so widespread. Anyways, I can play Battlefield too, right? Is 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 this, is this really that like that much more different in towards me wanting me to you know play? Well, I don't you see, know. It, military, it's, I mean? it's not just about uh, whether or not people want to join the military. It might be other subtler things as well. I wonder if it might be something about military sentiment as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's military sentiment. There are who are the enemies? What are the storylines? Right. Oh well, actually, in that game, you just fight other Americans. <laughs> it's Americans. For, I think it's supposed to be in America's uh, Army, but I'm talking about uh, even other games like COD. Um, oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, yeah. It's like the the meme of like the enemies in Battlefield always being either Russian or Chinese. Like always, <laughs> there's never another enemy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll definitely get into it. I think next time is going to be a bash. We'll mm-hmm. see. Oh, Steph says, uh, I'm curious of CIA intelligence and music in modern day, if it's known to still happen or not, since I think uh, we still see things in Hollywood. In fact, I know some stuff about, uh, I know some stuff about uh, people who are, uh, a lot of them, a lot of the known stuff is people who are like basically semi-retired, but are still performing, you know, who have CIA ties. There's an interesting story about the Beatles that I could, uh, I could, I could talk about. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff about uh, about that whole era that is extremely fascinating. I have a few books about uh, that era. I don't have them near me, unfortunately. Written by a former intelligence officer. Uh, he happened to be uh, working for the, uh, the DEA, and I did some uh, interesting cross-referencing to see if stuff he was saying was true or not. And it was uh, quite fascinating to find another deep rabbit hole of uh, intelligence cro- uh, crossing over with... Uh, with culture, so uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll even uh, cross into the music and talk even about uh, popular artists, particularly of the '70s um, and uh, intelligence. Yeah, there's that, and so I don't think there's any reason not to believe that there are no music artists right now who are who are not intelligence, given that again, people, you know, we think about it as like a '70s thing, an '80s meme, and pretty much gone by the '90s. Yeah, that's not that's not true. At all, um, there's no safeguards that have been put in place uh, that would prevent such a thing from happening. Besides a few nominal things that don't actually do anything, so uh, there's that. Look, tell a man no trouble. I don't want beef, man. I just want vibes. Big man like me, no need for the telephone hype. I got too much getting online. One rule, then dead I'm on sight. Wrong move, I bet they gon' ride. No need for the telephone hype, nah. No need for the snoozing. Big whip outside, I'm cruising. Big stick inside, no losing. Better watch out for the snake and Judas's. Don't ask them who this is. I bet they know what I'm moving in. I bet I show it into a dim. How you hate and then lose again? 
How you hating my vibes? Why you wasting my time? Getting hype on my line. Tell a man I don't want feedback. I just want relax. Brand new whip, two tone. I need that brand new hit. You know, like lean back, brand new bits. I live in we back, man. You never gonna like us. Get them on sight now. Let them all light that way. They know I'm righteous. Look at my life. I'm living all right. I'm nice. You know I'm all right. Cause looking like Christ. No need for the hype or fight. All telephone vipers. No need for the telephone vipers.